If you want to get rid of all the ads, just choose the David McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts and you'll hear us without any clutter or noise or ads. Lovely, John. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Beautiful. To understand the economy... You have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. I hope all is going well in your world. This is the podcast, as you know, that tries to keep economics that little bit more comprehensible. John is nodding at me over here. That little bit more eclectic. How are you? He's Ed? right. He's right. It he's is right. more eclectic. It is right. It is right. We're going to talk about Russia today. Yes. But before yeah. that, how's your week been? Do you know what? It's been It's been a busy week. Good. It's been a very busy week. I need another holiday after my last holiday. I well, that, need that's holiday. what happens when you go on your holidays. You actually get the holiday bug. That's what I always think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you want to just keep going, just don't go on holidays. Just stay yeah, here. Or in, just stay on stay holidays. Here, stay here in the HQ. Stay here in the basement. Could do, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just bring my mics with me. That's the other thing. Do you know what I was reading, John, this week? I was reading Ernest Hemingway's accounts of ah. Germany in 1922 and 23. Ernest Hemingway was writing for, he's a stringer, yeah. journalist for the Toronto Daily Star. Right. And he's talking about going to Germany during the hyperinflation. So I'm doing some... Research about the hyperinflation in Germany right. in the nineteen twenty-three, and the interesting, the reason it's important is that's the backdrop against which Putin emerged in Russia. Right, and it's fascinating when you start reading about that period. There was also I'm reading about what was going on culturally in Germany at the time, right? And the culture is extraordinary. There was a book, the best-selling, the biggest blockbuster movie, right? Yeah, in nineteen twenty-two-twenty-three, was a movie by a fellow you've probably heard of called Fritz Lang, director. Right. Silent movie yeah. called Dr. Mabus, Story of a Gambler. And it was right. about a speculator <laughs> in Germany. Now, this is a huge blockbuster in Weimar, Germany. And it's all about what happens when a society becomes unhinged, when right. a society okay. becomes totally compromised, when a society feels that it's a victim, when a society feels it's destined to greatness and that greatness has been taken away from them. And when it feels that the economy isn't working for them and there's all sorts of gamblers, speculators, and the average honest, robust German is getting outsmarted mm. by these, you know, they used to call them Rafka in Germany, 
which were basically called money grabbers. And as I was reading this, I was thinking, that is very much like the Russia that I experienced in the late 90s. And it's very much like the Russia that Putin came to eradicate. Yeah. And this week, we're going to talk about what is left in Russia. Because, you know, last week, all of the podcasts were doing Ukraine, Russia. I just thought maybe it's better to just yeah. let that rest for a minute. Sure, sure, sure. And come back and do it a week later. Because the big issue is, what does year two of this war look like? Yeah. Year one, we know what it looks like. But what does year two of this war look like? And interestingly, what seems to be the case is China is edging closer to Russia. Yes. Which is a big change for the West. This is a massive change because what it does, it plugs the hole in Russia's capability, which is that China can produce anything yeah. at pace but it's and at cost. It's interesting because what I was reading during the week as well is that the number of global international companies that have left and out of the what, something like 122 companies, only 17 have actually up sticks and gone. And left Russia. And left Russia. Yes. Um, and and there are a number of companies who are kind of stuck in the middle. And they seem to be a lot of kind of airline leasing companies and that kind of stuff. And then, can't remember the exact figures, but the last kind of 40, 45 companies that remain there have China links. But in fairness, a lot of the Irish companies have left. The likes of Smurfit, uh, Kerry Group, those kind of companies. Yeah, well, I, it's an interesting thing, John. I was thinking about, so what happens... I suppose they have in the back of their heads two things. One is maybe they haven't left. I think they've all put their sort of companies into some sort of freeze. Mm, yeah. So money's not coming in, money's not going out. They're stuck there, right? Maybe one of the reasons they haven't left, and this is going to be a subject of the podcast, is they believe that the regime is on its way out. And if we sell up now, we're just going to sell our assets to Russians at two cents in the dollar. So we're going to sell them for half nothing, number one. And number two, if we do sell, who are they going to sell it to? There are no, what many Westerners say, clean Russian businesses. They're all part of the oligarchy. And maybe that's their justification. And if it is, what it presupposes is the corporate Europe and corporate America believe that the Putin regime is on its way out in some shape or form. That's one worldview, right? Yeah. But if you actually look at the numbers, right, is the West really supporting Ukraine? And you look at the numbers, which is quite extraordinary. We seem to think, and I thought when I was in Ukraine, when you see all the big armaments and, mm. and guns and everything, that there's huge support. But the figures are the following. This guy called Adam Twos, very, very good. Got a podcast called Ones and Twos. Very, very good podcast. Okay, name, isn't it? Yeah, it is good. But he is writing and he's saying that over the past 12 months, the U.S. spent 0.21% of its GDP on military support to Ukraine, which is nothing. 0.21%. Right? 0.21%. Right. So not even a percent, not even half a percent of GDP. Right. right okay. Not even a quarter of 1% of GDP have they spent on Ukraine. But these figures of 130 billion being ploughed in and all the rest. But... Well, I mean, if you think U.S. GDP is about 24 trillion. So it's huge, yeah, right? Yeah, 24,000 yeah. billion. Yeah. Right? So this is slightly less than it's spent in the average year in Afghanistan. Right. In the average year. Really? Okay. So the first year of the war, which is, mm. and we know it has been 
a grind and it has been a huge, huge drain on Western allegedly resources mm. was less than the Americans spent in Afghanistan where they were fighting a proxy war in effect and they were fighting against the guerrilla regime in the yeah, Taliban, yeah, yeah. right? Yep. In Iraq, the spend was three times larger. The Korean War cost the US 13 times as much. 13 times as much. And the land lease for Britain and the British Empire in the Second World War ran to 15 times as much in proportional terms. So what we see is the West is not really supporting the Ukrainians in any muscular way. Yeah. So then the conclusion must be that the West obviously don't want Russia to win, but they don't want Russia to lose in the sense that they are afraid of what a losing Russia looks like. Right. Because we're afraid of Russia, because we're afraid of nuclear war, we're afraid of upsetting Russia. So what they're doing is we're giving the Ukrainians sufficient arms in order for them to precariously hold their front lines, but not enough arms to actually dent Russia. Not because we don't want Ukraine to win, but because maybe we fear Russia losing more. And that is fascinating. That's what I want the podcast to be about. Today. Right. Okay. I suppose, I suppose looking at those figures, you know, immediately you'd say, well, I suppose the big difference in those confrontations, there was boots on the ground. Yeah. Where there's no boots on the ground in this particular. Yeah. But it is about providing, you know, everything but jets in there yeah. at this stage. But so, so what would it take for the West, well, NATO, America, to actually go all in? Well, I, think what it does, well, I think what it does is it comes down to this idea of our understanding of Russia, that deep in the Western psyche, deep in the Western policymaking world, is an overestimation of what Russia is. Mm. Now, in the sense that the contrast between daily life in Russia and this idea of it being this notional superpower is so extreme. And I think I get this sense that what is driving European and American unwillingness to support the Ukrainians in a full-throated way in order to give the Ukrainians a chance yeah. is this fear that what will happen after a Russian defeat and maybe to put some flesh on this notion of ours, we should go and talk to a child of the Soviet Union, our old mate, Sasha Kabanowski, who is in Berlin. Great. And let's go and talk to Sasha Kabanowski. Sasha, how are you? Morning. Good, thanks. Morning. How are you? I'm great. I'm in really good form. Now tell me, let's start with this idea of how do we rationalize Russia? The background noise is the following. The West is saying they are supporting Ukraine and the optics look great. Biden's there. Von der Leyen is there. Macron is there. They're all going there, okay? But the actual devil is in the detail. And what we see is a very limited commitment to supporting Ukraine, suggesting, suggesting that the West's aims are to kind of stop Putin, but to also prevent Ukraine from winning. So it's like they don't want a Russian victory. They don't want a Ukrainian victory simply because what they don't want to do is upset this Russian megalithic, enormous country and risk nuclear confrontation. 
Now, what you're writing the Substack is that's a profound misunderstanding of the reality of Russia, of what it is. So tell us, how do we rationalize? Sasha, you started with Churchill. What did Churchill say about Russia as well? I can't remember. Russia is a mystery wrapped in a, in a riddle. Uh, surround, Surrounded by an enigma or something, uh, is it? Enigma, yeah. I quote it in, in my piece, but I don't remember it verbatim. But the, the basic premise is that it's impossible to understand Russia. And I think that there's a fascination with Russia, and I also think that there's a misconception of Russia. And that misconception of Russia has, has been built by, well, romanticizing our perception of Russia based on the amazing cultural achievements literature. I think that many, if not most, uh, people that actually consider Russia do so because of the ballet, because uh, of the literature, because of the art, and basically everything that's happened in, in the 18th and, and 19th and early 20th century. Also because Russia has mythologized their achievement in World War II. And I think that they have gone into hyperdrive in promoting this vision of Russia as a great military power. And what I try to convey in my Substack article is that actually that's a great myth. And if you actually look at the history of, of Russian military performance, it's nothing more than, than defeat after defeat, stalemates and embarrassment. The last time we spoke, you were telling me, okay, so you are the grandson of Red Army soldiers, right? You are yes. the grandson of a whole family who fought in the Red Army, who went all the way yes. to Berlin. And you're saying, despite the evidence of your family, your extended family in the Red Army, you still believe, and despite their victory in the Second World War, you still believe that... This is a sort of an aberration. The Second World War is not the norm for Russia's military intervention. You think that Russia's military interventions are far less impressive because you're absolutely right. The West believes, I mean, in terms of, I want to come back to you growing up in the Soviet Union. I want to go back to the sense of which the Second World War is the issue around which all Soviet citizens galvanized. Was that absolutely the case all the time? But it's still the case. So World War II is uh, the Holy War. If there is such a sense, uh, it's the Crusades, right? It is um, untouchable. And the Putin regime has used it to basically promote Russian glory and, and its own achievements, always focusing on, on World War II, because there is no greater beacon of Russian greatness than World War II. And they've completely destroyed the achievements and, and what basically was done and sacrificed by uh, uh, people like my grandparents and 26 million people who died in World War II. But once again, it's much more of an illusion than it is an achievement because it's, it was a war of attrition. Stalin's quote, uh, at a certain point, quantity becomes quality, basically was an example of how he fought the war. And the war was throwing bodies at a problem. And just in the last month of the war, okay, to take Berlin, because Stalin wanted to take Berlin by May 1st, and Stalin assumed that he was in a race against the Americans to, to take Berlin. Just in the last month of the war, he sacrificed 500,000 Russian soldiers. 500,000 Russian soldiers in one month were killed taking Berlin. And to say that this is a great achievement by the Russian military or by the Russian strategists is to be disingenuous. It doesn't show real strategic know-how or technological superiority to bury 500,000 people in a month. 
And it certainly shows the, the disregard for human life that is endemic in the ruling classes of Russia. And we are seeing this in, in, in the war in Ukraine right now. What I want to talk to you about is the nub of your substack, which is the contrast between the reality of Russia, an enormous country with the world's maybe most generous deposits of natural resources, an enormous land empire, a large population, not by Chinese standards, but by European standards. And yet, despite all this, what we still have is an economy and a society that has very, very little to crow about. And this is something that I've always tried to understand. Why is that, number one? And number two, why do we in the West have this enigmatic image of Russia as if it is psychologically bigger or as big as it is physically? I think it's all driven by, um, well, by its size, first of all. It's very difficult to, to believe that a country that occupies one-eighth of the land mass of, of the globe is rotten inside and is not a great power. That's point number one. Point number two is we grew up in a psyche of nuclear war. And it's undeniable that Russia has a, has a large nuclear arsenal. And that gives it uh, power. And over the last 20 years, uh, we've had a very sort of mixed relationship with Russia, whereby we started out as being extremely optimistic about Russian democracy and, and, and it's joining the sort of Western mentality and Western institutions. And then gradually we were disappointed and then dismissive as with the Obama administration. And the more we sort of vacillated between being gung-ho and, and, and very ignoring what is happening in Russia, that ossified this, this perception once again of Russia being uh, internally within Russia being persecuted and, and lashing out against the West in the only way that they know possible. But at the end of the day, if you listen to the speech that Putin gave three days ago, and if you played it in 2000, it's exactly the same speech. The same problems exist. The economy is, is going to be better the next year. They're going to build more housing next year. He's given the government instructions on, on establishing local production of high-tech components. Uh, this is fantastic. They're going to be self-sufficient. And it's a speech of someone who is completely unengaged and doesn't understand the realities of the country that he's purportedly ruling. And you can't, I mean, just because you, you say that we're going to buy Russian high-tech components doesn't mean that Russia is actually producing any high-tech components. Russia can't even produce an automatic transmission for its domestically made cars. They've been trying to do this since 2014. And they still have nothing. They can't produce ball bearings. An article I read was that they can't even uh, make uh, shoes for pants for ballerinas. It's been a neglected, mismanaged economy for the last 22 years. And the military performance during this war, it, it's just basically all the chickens have come home to roost because there is no technology. You know, the super weapons that have been advertised over the last 15, 20 years are non-existent except for on paper, on videos. So you're saying we're still back to the big Potemkin village idea that it's all smoke and mirrors. We believe this. 
And yet, and, I, and I'm inclined to go along with as somebody who's been to Russia many, many times, I'm definitely inclined to go along with you on this idea that there is a very large question mark that you even get the minute you fly into Sheremetyevo in Moscow of, hold on a second, this place doesn't look and feel like a first world country. It just doesn't feel like that. And that's even on the outskirts of Moscow. Can I ask you, though, about the Russian mind? I'm talking about your relations. I'm talking about your friends. I'm talking about people you've grown up with. You quoted Vladislav Surkov, sort of who's known as Putin's Goebbels, and this idea of the Russian world. So their sense, so for example, the Nazis had this bizarre idea of the German Volk or the German folk. And that was anybody who spoke German. So that meant that Germany, in the Nazi mind, extended to the Volga Germans, extended to the Saxons in Romania, extended to East Prussia, Memeland, Ponoramia, then further, further, further out. Explain this Russian world idea, because there has to be some ideology, some philosophy governing the attack on Ukraine, which is just bigger than one man's ego. There has to be something that they're buying into. I'm not sure if we can call it a philosophy. It's once again a narrative that has been developed and exploited for a variety of purposes, whether it was in Tsarist Russia, whether it was in the Soviet rebuilding of the fallen empire, and whether it's Putin's own version of history that has actually nothing to do with historical facts. And the historical facts are that Ukraine has been basically not a part of Russia. It was more a part of the world surrounding the Polish and Lithuanian and more central European powers that have constantly been at each other's throats on the outskirts of Russia. The Russian history with Ukraine basically starts about 300 years ago. This idea of the Russian world is, it's created as a pretext. So I think we have to go back to the early 2000s and Putin basically needed to come up with a, with a vision for the future of Russia, the national idea. And uh, Sorkov was part of this group that was uh, working on creating this national idea. Everyone was anticipating the unveiling of this national idea as something that would be looking towards the future. The best thing that they could come up with, because they couldn't see the future in terms of what we in the West would consider one. So they reverted back to this idea of based around the Russian Empire, based around Soviet Union. They knew exactly how traumatic the fall of the Soviet Union and the independence of these people who the Russians think they've sacrificed for historically, who the Russians feel they've granted culture and language and music and the great wealth of Russia to bring these people into a state of bliss. And this was a message that was easy to sell and to have reverberate within the Russian population. I mean, the Russian Russian population. So Russia has this problem of, of it never actually escapes or it's, it's incapable of escaping its past because the leadership is incompetent, leadership has no vision, and the only idea is to stay in power, keep stealing, and uh, run the country as if it's their own personal toy store. 
And so they keep reverting back. They keep selling this idea of a great rush. And it, for the Russian mindset, when you look at it from that point of view, having Ukraine reject Russia and look towards the West, having the Baltics do the same, facing these problems and issues in Central Asia. And those countries, they really believe that they brought civilization to those countries. It is extremely painful. It's like, it's like a parent you know, being rejected by, by their children. And this, I think, drives the, the added animosity in this war. It's as if, you know, they think that they've granted this gift that was, has been thrown back in their face. And so this is very, very painful. And it leads to, to a war of attrition that, that we haven't seen since World War II, in essence. Your substack, before we go, refers to Putin by the nickname the other KGB guys gave to him in Dresden as the cigarette butt. Yeah. That's what, that was his nickname in the KGB. Yes, but in Russian context, it's even more diminutive than just a cigarette butt. It's someone of no consequence whatsoever. What's the, what's the expression? Uh, akurak. Kurak. Akurak. Akurak is, is, is a cigarette butt. It's a, fa- a fag end, as we'd say. Yeah. Now, you know, the, the, the similarities, and, and I don't want to go this, it's far, it's far too easy, but, you know, an obscure corporal operating in an obscure part of the world, sees the destruction of an old empire, sees the chaos, gets elevated to power by, in Putin's case, he was anointed. In in, in the little man from Austria's case, he actually did build a political and democratic party. But there is this sort of similarity. And you look at the balance sheet of the 22 years of Putin's rule. Now, pro-Putinistas will say he took over a collapsing empire from Yeltsin, he brought order, he brought a certain amount of certainty, he brought a certain amount of revanchism of Russia's past, Russia's pride, as we spoke about. He stabilized that particular ship. Is there any merit in that view, in your opinion, as a child of the Soviet Union? Well, I think that there is merit to that view because the 90s were extremely painful. I think that it's very difficult for Western audiences to appreciate just how difficult the 90s were. I mean, imagine yourself waking up one morning, and it literally was one morning, where you've lost everything, your savings, your country, your sort of illusion of the world. That you were actually, yesterday you were living in, in, in a country that was considered a superpower, and today you're living in a country that's on the brink of collapse. The things that people had to do in order to survive are incredible. It really had a a huge impact on the Russian psyche. And so to say that Putin did not do anything positive in early stages of his presidency to stabilize the situation, to give people a sense of grounding, would be disingenuous. But the problem is that Russians continue to choose perceived stability. Better the devil that you know than the devil that you don't. And they've constantly made a compromise with their, with their conscience, with, I think, their understanding of the future in terms of they've always chosen stability and relative comfort over democracy and having a say in your country's future and the way that this country is going to be governed. And so they've basically, time and again, rejected any chance and any opportunity to turn and demand a more democratic society. 
And they've been complicit in closing their eyes to this power grab that Putin has, has undertaken over the last 22 years. And the last opportunity that they had to support a democratic movement was in 2010, 2011, when Navalny and sort of the group of liberal supporters that uh, he built around himself brought out protests into the streets of Moscow. About 100,000 people showed up. It looked impressive on TV, but it completely did not resonate throughout Russia. And basically, the Russians were saying that we're perfectly fine with the government that lives its own life and does what it does in its own interests, as long as they don't bother us. I, I choose comfort. But that's a slippery slope. And at this point in time, I think that the country has gotten to the point of no return because the extent of mismanagement, the extent of corruption and the extent of theft that the Putin regime has, has basically practiced over the last 20 years leaves the country without a foundation to rebuild on, especially considering the number of people that have left in the recent past. I mean, one of the, I'm going to leave it here, one of the last points you, you made was that Russia is now the third largest emigrant population in the world after yes. India and Mexico. So what is it? Yes. 13 million Russians have left. It's between 11 million and 17 million because the figures are difficult to, to pin down. But the Russian community outside of Russia is the third largest immigrant community in the world. Wow. That's not a sign of greatness. Well, uh, the problem is that Russia has never valued the real asset, the real sort of natural gift that it had, which is its population and the people, that the people always make the country. Uh, and I think that in the West, it's easy to understand that and it's easy to subscribe to that idea. In Russia, it isn't. And in fact, one of the most popular signs uh, that uh, you could see uh, when you walked into Russian companies and talked to Russian top managers, they would have a sign on their desk saying, keep smiling, the boss likes idiots. And, th and that's the attitude. The attitude is that people are idiots en masse. And you can dispense with them at your own leisure. And, you know, there, there are videos on Telegram with Russian women, Russian mothers, who are basically saying that I have four sons. I'm happy to send them to war because I'll have more children. I can have more children. Wow. How can you build a great country with an attitude like that? And how does this end? I think that... What we started with, what you started with the question today, right, in terms of lackluster support. So the message is great from the West in terms of we're behind Ukraine and we're going to, uh, to support it. But the amount of support in historic terms and is really quite small. I think the West believes that somehow if they play this half-hearted game, they can prevent the complete collapse of, of Russia. And I think that, that actually we're past the point of no return. Because if you look at any metric, if you actually, well, now, now it's very difficult to travel to Russia, but just YouTube, Russian roads, YouTube, Russian infrastructure, YouTube, anything to do with Russia, and you will see destitution and collapse and decay that is unfathomable in a first world country, in a European country. Considering the fact that, that over a million professional young men, programmers, engineers, uh, businessmen, left 
since 2022, since the start of the war. I mean, it, these people are very, very difficult to replace. It takes, it takes 20 years, 15 years to educate a citizen, a professional. This, this is not replaceable overnight. And once again, I go back to the speech uh, that Putin gave. 2022, he's been in power for 22 years. It's a litany, it's a litany of promises, it's a litany of directives on what to do and how to start rebuilding the country in a time of war. So where have the last 22 years gone? And so I think that, that in essence it is beyond saving because the tensions are building within his own personal circle. I think that there was a video where uh, Matvienka, who was, uh, uh, I think she's the speaker of the Federation Council at this point in time. But anyway, she was the governor of St. Petersburg and one of Putin's closest uh, supporters. And I think that the, the video has made the round where she's mouthing something during his speech to Siluanov, the prime minister. And uh, lip readers have read it to be, which means in Russian, that basically he's, he's bullshitting again. And I think that his internal circle is, is recognizing that, you know, that this is, if it hasn't approached the point of no return, then it's very, very close. And, and, and basically people are going to have to make some big decisions relatively quickly because it can't go two years or three years. Russia has no resources to keep this war going for three years. And the fact that, that the West is vacillating and the fact that China is beginning to make noises, now that's beginning to be problematic because if the West assures a rapid victory in Ukraine, and I mean a rapid victory securing Ukraine's 1991 borders, that turns this war into a Russian domestic problem. Keeping it going for a long time is an international problem, and that makes it difficult. We will leave it there because I want to I open up the China discussion at some later stage. But Sasha, as always, fascinating, a little bit uh, apocalyptic. But I, I think as somebody who knows Russia reasonably well and has traveled a lot to that neck of the woods, I think it's very, very accurate. I think it's very accurate. Well, it's an opinion. <laughs> All right, <laughs> Sasha, listen, we'll talk to you soon. David, thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Actually, I have to say, I've seen a lot of those YouTube videos that he was talking have about. You? Yeah, of of infrastructure and roads. And there's, there's a whole series of YouTube videos about driving in Russia, which is a whole different story altogether. But let's come back and talk about some of the points that Sasha was talking about there after this. Great. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Here's a simple question for you based on everything that Sasha was saying there Can Russia ever, ever be a democracy? Like a proper you, democracy, a proper democracy. Like, have they gone past that point of no return? Because they had that opportunity, as Sasha was saying there, they had that opportunity in 2010 with Navalny, and he got a fair bit of support, but only in the likes of Moscow yeah. and St. Petersburg. The rest of this vast, vast country weren't supporting him. They weren't supporting him. It's a very strange thing if you look back at the history of Russia. There's a there's a great book that I have here. I know John is always get freaked out. Right, called the Romanovs by it's a, a brick. Called... Every time he does that, he pulls out a brick. I know it's a big <laughs> off one though. The shelf. It's the Romanovs. It's uh, it's by Simon Seabag Montefiore. It's a really brilliantly well written book about maybe the most terrifying family in Europe, the Romanovs. Absolutely terrifying people. Mm-hmm. He says Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, unspeakable yeah. people. Yeah, like like, yeah. like vicious, neurotic, interbred without any sense of their own people's welfare, like a really extraordinary. And each czar and czarina in themselves is grotesque. I mean, but it's really well written. Yeah. But if you but look- But they look great. They had great garb. They had great, great kit. They had <laughs> yeah. great, great kit. And of course, Peter the Great was six foot 10. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a huge creature. He was also into all sorts of bizarre late night nocturnal activities. Okay. That's for another podcast, Yeah, Mike. he was a necrophiliac. Was he? Yes, indeed. Oh, man. As well as many other things, okay? But we can talk about that. But, <laughs> but, if you look at Russian history, the long-range history of Russia, I think it was some Russian academics said, Russia before Peter the Great was a tragedy, and after Peter the Great was a crime scene. Right. Right. What a okay. great line. It's a great line, right? But there has there is no history mm. of democracy. I mean, we forget that Russian people up until 1860, 1870 were serfs. They were slaves. Yeah. They were property of the aristocracy. That's the first thing. Then they have socialist revolutions. Those socialist revolutions win. Those communist revolutions. Then they have the communist rule until, what, 1991? So between 1991 and maybe 2000, they have a period. And it's interesting, they talk about Navalny now, but the guy who probably was most emblematic of the potential was a guy called Boris Nemtsov, who got murdered, assassinated by Mm. Putin's people in Moscow not that long ago. So they have no real tradition of what we would note as European democracy. It just, it doesn't exist there, right? And of course, this is probably what is in contrast to the Ukrainians. But the Ukrainians are very much a flawed democracy, but a democracy nonetheless. So my sense is that, you know, what you have is you have an autocratic and bureaucratic system in Russia. I don't think that the world that exists in the West, i.e. this free democratic elections every five years with the potential to change the guard. It's very, very difficult to do that in a kleptocracy because if the people at the top have robbed so much 
then obviously the penalty for them for a change in government is enormous. Yeah. Because they lose everything. Yeah. Yeah. And also people not only will want the stuff back, but the corruption will be exposed. So it is an endemic. Once you have people at the top robbing the country, it's almost impossible for them to entertain something as weird as the average guy having a vote and ejecting them. Yeah. So certainly not until this regime and whatever comes after it is ejected. There's no great yearning in Russia for democracy. If you look at if you look at all the all the surveys, basically what Putin does is he creates his own political party, then he creates an opposition. The opposition then pretends that the elections are some sort of runoff against mm. an opposition and the incumbent, but they're always in his pocket. And Bob's your uncle. He says, "Well, I got voted by ninety percent or eighty percent." It's just a, another uh, version of the Potemkin village. It is exactly it's a Potemkin village. The whole thing, and, and then Lukashenko at the same thing in in Belarus. Yes. I mean, Belarus yeah. had a free election, allegedly that was completely rigged two years ago, mm. and they had huge, huge protests on the street. And of course, that was snuffed out by the army. Yeah. So what we're talking about is a profoundly different culture. But until unless, and this is the interesting thing, there is some sort of democratic accountability, there's always going to be this opacity and or opaqueness in our perceptions of Russia. So it's that idea, you know, those little Russian dolls that they have, little... Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you open one and there's something else inside and there's something else inside and something else inside. It's that same idea that, you know, nothing is as it is. So you uncover one secret and then there's another thing inside and there's another thing inside. And this is what our friend Churchill was talking about that Russia is a mystery wrapped in an enigma. Some, yes, yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah, okay. yeah. But as long as we give it that type of respect, that it is some muscular, vibrant, dynamic, dangerous power, as opposed to what you were seeing on the YouTube videos, mm-hmm. a decrepit, decaying, rotten, yeah. to the core system, we will always give it more relevance than it should have. And as a result of that, maybe prolong Russia's imperial or nationalistic obsessions and ambitions to the detriment of almost everybody who lives in that part of the world. Just a quick message to say, why don't you sign up and follow us on Patreon? You get no ads. You get access to our chat community, and very soon you will get an entirely new economics course on the history of money and how money operates in the economy. That's going to be out for next month, so join us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams.